Hello everyone, it's Zach from Enrollify and I'm very excited to bring you our newest segment called Fanatical Fridays with Mickey Baines. I have Mickey Baines on the other line. He is currently camping. Mickey, where exactly are you? I'm in Verona, Virginia. Uh, somewhere about halfway down I-81 on the western side of Virginia uh, in the Shenandoah Valley. We're tucked in between some mountains. Hopefully reception will stay strong enough for us to have this uh, call. Uh, but we're right by a river, by some mountains, uh, hanging out for a few days with the kids on our way down to South Carolina. Fantastic. Uh, anything to anything to get out of the house these days. Uh, Mickey, tell us just quickly a little bit about who you are. Uh, you're, a, you're a principal at Kennedy & Co. Talk to us a little bit about just your, your uh, role at Kennedy & Co. And then I want to dive in and talk a little bit about Fanatical Recruitment, the podcast that you started a couple years back, and sort of how that has evolved into this new segment of the Enrollify podcast. Sure. So, you know, I'm a principal at Kennedy Company. Like I said, I oversee our technology services team, uh, which realistically comes down to a a lot of CRM-based work, um, building, implementing, designing, integrating uh, with various platforms. Uh, We have a team. uh, We've been... um, Kennedy Company's been consulting with higher ed uh, and for almost seven years at this point. I've been with the firm for three and a half years and had consulted prior to that for on my own for six years. And I guess I come to this side of work with an enrollment management perspective. I, I learned higher ed, worked in higher ed for 13 years, uh, focused almost exclusively on enrollment management. And from that lens, really got into the realm of technology and CRM work. And uh, I think that helps kind of guide um, our path with institutions on the various projects that we have. Uh, and, and you brought up uh, fanatical, fanatical Recruitment. You know, it's a podcast I started, a concept I kind of put together, and I really began the concept of this before I started consulting. You know, and, and as I left my role working directly in higher ed, you know, I had been talking with colleagues at other institutions who kept asking me, what to me at the time seems like simple questions, basic questions on how are you able to do X, Y, or Z uh, and A, get that approved from your leadership or B, uh, have success with it. And, you know, when I looked at their question, let's just say, for example, that question was, you know, how can, how are you using the your communication plan to, to really effectively recruit a student? And, you know, what type of results are you getting in your work? They didn't always have an answer to that. And the real point of fanatical recruitment is how can we be hyper-focused, being fanatically focused on the results of the work that we're doing? And I don't mean the results at a 30,000 elevation. I'm talking on a ground-level elevation at zero level. Um, so if I'm going to communicate with students, if I'm going to have a staff member call a prospective student today at 10 a.m., why are they calling at 10? Why are they calling that student? And what is specifically are they going to be addressing with that student to provide that student value so that she or he knows that our institution is the best fit? And if you're not asking all of those questions and diving in at that level, you're not going to be able to optimize your results and get the best results you possibly can. And that you know, really gets to the heart of w- what I mean by being fanatical about it. And, and I just, you know, we 
Hey, Mickey, uh, you cut out, you cut out briefly there. Just, uh, what, uh, you were about to say that get, you were saying that that gets at the heart of what it means to be fanatical. And then you, and then you cut out. Hello. Did you? Ah, there did you I go. lose you? You did. You, you yeah. lost me for a second there. You were no. It's it's right. We're, we're keeping no. it. We're keeping it rolling. So you were you, okay. were you were just saying that um you were talking about what it means to get at the heart of being fanatical. Yes. So you know, the heart of being fanatical is diving in five layers deep to those questions and really looking at the results that you have and thinking about how you plan each of those moments. How would we, how do we plan the emails? How do we plan the texts? How do we plan the phone calls? How do they intersect? And what is the role and value that we expect each of them to provide us when we get to the outcome we want? And if you don't get to that level, you're missing out on having those optimal results. I love that. And you know what I, what I specifically think is, uh, fantastic about this framework of thinking about enrollment management is that it's really about thinking about uh, how do you actually personalize and differentiate your game plan? And I think in higher ed, the temptation a lot of the time is to sort of rinse and repeat, right? What are other people doing? You know, we we always send emails at Tuesday, you know, on Tuesdays at, at 10 a.m. because we went to a conference one time three years ago, and that was the best time that they said to send email communications to prospective students, right? Or, or whatever it is. And so I love this idea and this this really this framework that you've laid out because I think it, it really calls us out as enrollment marketers to think very critically about uh, being intentional, being intentional with our communications, being intentional with our time. How are you spending time each day? What are what are sort of the most urgent and important things that your team needs to be focused on on, you know, Monday from from 10 to 2, right? And how is that different from how they're spending, you know, their mornings on on Fridays from 9 to nine to noon. Right. So I love, I love this idea and I'm really, really excited about this, this segment, because, uh, one of the things that I think we share Mickey is this, uh, genuine love for the space, genuine love and desire to, to help people, especially folks who are in contexts where, um, they feel like they are under-resourced, understaffed. They don't have a lot of time in any given day to think about enrollment marketing, to think about their communications plan. Um, they might, feel trapped. And so our, our goal really with Fanatical Fridays um, is to, to discuss the traits, the strategies, and the tactics that separate the best teams from, from the rest of the pack. And again, this sort of, this sort of uh, mission, if you will, was really birthed first and foremost with, uh, with your podcast, Fanatical Recruitment. And now we're, we're bringing it into, into the Enrollify family here, which is, which is fantastic. So we're going to have a lot of fun with these, this segment, and uh, it's going to be totally casual and organic, as hopefully our listeners, if they haven't already figured it out based off of the fact that you're calling from a campsite, um, it's going to be organic. It's going to, it's going to be, it's going to be raw here, but um, I want to just kick off this segment with talking a little bit about what's on your mind, what's been on your mind this week. So Mickey, I'm curious if you, if you want to just kick us off here. What are some things that you've been, uh, quote unquote, noodling on over the past seven-ish days or so? That's a good question. Uh, I noodle on a lot. Um, With respect to enrollment marketing. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, in terms of enrollment marketing, you know, I I look at 
you know, we're, we're living in a different time now with, with this pandemic. And I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how schools um, are responding, how they some have or have not modified their communication plan based on this. Or if they've modified, they may tweak a line or two in an email um, or maybe insert one new email into a communication plan and leave everything else as is. Um, you know, how have we coached our staffs? And this is all in the last week, but how have we begin really coaching our staffs to adjust and how they're communicating on a one-to-one basis on this? I'm sure we've given them some talking points about are we having classes in the fall or aren't we uh, when someone asks or, or, you know, what's going on with our um, deposit deadline that we have where we have to, you know, the old May 1, the new June 1, whatever that is. I'm sure we've given some talking points. But how have we really coached staff to understand and listen, to to gather what it is a prospective student is telling us and how we can determine the best way to respond to help that student feel comfortable about their decision, especially if that decision is to enroll with us, right? How can we comfort them what's the right way? And, and when they're saying X, do we un- know that they really mean Y um, and, and articulating that? And so that's... I don't know that we have. Maybe some institutions have. I know some haven't, but that's what's really been on my mind uh, in the past few days. No, and you know, just to just to piggyback on that, I think that one of the things that that at least I'm seeing and and that we're we're hearing from folks is they might have you know thrown up a, a you know a little pop up banner on their website, or they might have added sort of some call out text to that first uh, uh, email that they get post inquiry or or post app. But beyond that, right, the, the, the reality of the situation is that schools have done uh, very, very little from a, from a general communication standpoint to adjust their, their tone, their style, to address the, the fears and concerns of students. Um, I think that, you know, we'll talk a little bit uh, later about a secret shopper, uh, secret, secret shopper experiment that, that Enrollify is conducting right now. Um, and that, that speaks more to, to the graduate level. But uh, from what I have seen and what I have heard throughout the industry is that schools, there, there's huge opportunity right now to dramatically improve communications and to, to think really critically about what is the what are the messages students need to hear right now? Uh, what are the strategies and tactics uh, that, that your school can implement to best help them with, you know, address their fears um, and, and guide them, again, as strategically and, and as sustainably as possible? I think there's lots of room to to be a leader right now. And um, I think in, in many ways, the, 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 the playing field has been leveled. Um, and there's, you know, lots and lots of opportunity for, for schools, especially schools that have maybe struggled in the past with truly identifying their unique value proposition. If they can do an exceptional job at servicing the students, if they can do a really good job at helping hold accepted students and even prospective students' hands through this moment, I think they're going to come out on the other side of this a lot stronger and grow in terms of their, their brand reputation as an institution that is incredibly helpful. Um, have you have you noticed or, or heard of any schools that have been doing doing this uh, especially well that that people might be able to go and, and you know uh, uh, stock online and see steal you know steal some ideas from? Or is there anyone that comes to mind that you think is sort of doing well at leading during this moment? Uh, well, I've, we've got some clients I'd say that are. Um, 
asking questions that are maybe two or asking questions of, of ideas support from us that are maybe two steps further ahead than some of the others. Uh, and, um, and, and surprisingly, I, uh, they're public institutions, maybe not surprisingly, but I've got a couple of public institutions, I'd say, that are asking questions. Now, I will say in our work with clients, we've got several right now that have, that we're engaged with that we're helping write uh, out, in, or not necessarily write out, but help plan and map out communications for prospective students. And, you know, when they initially came to us a few months ago to do this work, have since come to us and said, hey, we're doing this work. Can we pivot a little bit and focus more on this? And so seeing an institution take that step, um, it shows us on their mind, you know, and I don't want to minimize kind of what we're what we're seeing in terms of the opportunities, because I think it's important to understand that this, this is the opportunity to do it. And I don't want to minimize the cost to doing that. Sure. The cost, whether that's the, the, the financial cost, if you need a third party help to do it, or the, the resource and time cost when you're just trying to figure out how do we react next um, and, and get our feet up under us. Uh, you know, March was a, was a hectic time uh, for everyone. Uh, and it's not something you can just flip a switch or just say, hey, I'm going to carve out a day and rewrite all of our communications. I, look, that, that's not reasonable. Sure. And what, what we're talking about is a, is, is a major lift, maybe more so for some folks than others. But, um, you know, that... Uh, we've got some clients that are asking us questions. You know, I, I, I call them up maybe a little too frequently. Um, but you know, George Mason university, um, good friend and client of ours, I would say is, is typically asking the questions, um, just for ideas and support, maybe a few weeks to a month ahead of what others are asking. And so um, it's not that they're asking certain questions or asking to do work or, or even taking steps on their own to do work that others aren't. They're just doing it a little faster. And so um, I would say a lot of that comes to their preparation and planning and and um, um, and their foresight and just their preparedness, not necessarily preparedness for a pandemic, but just the way they're organized, they're well-suited to react well um, when they need to shift quickly. I love that. Yep. And I think that to just, uh, you know, one last point here, uh, and then we can move on, is I really do think that the schools that are able to capitalize, I know it's it, it might be, uh, uh, you know, a little bit, uh, not, not in entirely empathetic to think about like this as, uh, as a real opportunity for folks. But I, th I really do think for folks who are, um, in maybe the, the lower tier, lower to mid tier sort of schools in terms of, a, of a ranking standpoint and really have struggled to identify how they're different from, you know, the college down the street. I really think that the way that we respond right now, the way that, that schools think critically about their communications um, can make all of the difference in what happens, you know, post COVID, post this pandemic. So my hope is that, you know, at least a couple of people out there are thinking, okay, hey, this is our moment. How do we, how do we do this? Well, it's going to be, you know, require a lot of work, take a lot of grit, but um, you know, let's become known as the most helpful college or university uh, in our area, or you know, the the, the best college and, and university from a customer service standpoint in this particular space or field. Um, so, anyways, I, I really hope that some, some a couple people really think about this opportunity and and capitalize on it. And 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 I Zach, I like what you were just kind of talking there in terms of getting that right um, mark or that right content point out there. Uh, and and knowing, you know, what is it that sets us apart? That that's 
probably the toughest challenge on it. The, and I would say if I take my enrollment management hat off and put on my technology hat, I think looking at what our technology allows us to do to ensure that we're maximizing it, and maybe even what does our technology uh, limit us from being able to do, uh, is that a, and is that the right time to say, hey, maybe we should pivot away and find a technology that allows us to do what we need to do. Um, you know, but that's, you know, I say the, the, the second factor in this is, is knowing what your technology has a capability of doing uh, and, and using it to its maximum if you can once you get that message right. Can I tell you about something that I've been thinking about lately? Please. Okay. So this is uh, not, not to hate on, on LinkedIn here, but um, I've, I've been spending, I actually love LinkedIn. I spend more time on LinkedIn than any other social network. And one of the things that I've been, uh, one of the things that I've been uh, noodling on this week is the idea of LinkedIn groups. And I think that LinkedIn groups were, um, and, and potentially I, I, I still think do have a lot of, of opportunity, but um, you know, even a couple years ago, everyone was talking about how LinkedIn groups were going to be the professional version of Facebook groups. There were going to be lots of uh, interaction and lots of collaboration and whatnot. Well, I'm a part of uh, at least 10 uh, LinkedIn groups that have uh, multiple thousands of members. Like I think the I think the average LinkedIn group that I'm a part of has a membership of 7,000. I looked at this right before we, we started recording. Anyway, so there's, there's a lot of people in these groups, right? But the interaction in these groups are is, is little to none. There's, there's typically like anywhere between three and five active contributors. And by active contributors, I mean people that really just post links to their own content uh, in these groups. Um, and then very, very little action or interaction on those actual posts. And so the other, you know, 6,900 and something uh, folks that are that are part of these groups, right, are, are seemingly just completely unengaged. And I don't know, I, and I don't know if you know this, Mickey, but I don't know if this ha- is an algorithmic issue. Like, I don't know if people, if LinkedIn, the way that LinkedIn's algorithms work, they're just not notifying people enough about uh, interaction in particular groups. Or I don't know if, you know, if it's a user issue, like are users just really not as active on LinkedIn as, as they should be? Um, you know, or, or is it the fact that the content that's being published in these groups are just, is just completely unengaging. And I think why, why this is pertinent to our conversation today is, um, and, and really sort of just enrollment marketing in general is I think LinkedIn, again, especially at the, at the graduate level, uh, has huge opportunity to, to be a source of quality lead generation. And in fact, when we, when we work with different schools and we, we, we run LinkedIn ad campaigns, the cost per acquisition of those contacts or, or of those inquiries are, um, you know, in many cases, five to 10 times more expensive than the cost per acquisition of, of a contact from Facebook. But the quality of those contacts are so much greater. And I think LinkedIn groups are, is a, is a great way. They're a great vehicle through which to communicate with prospective students and, and really find prospective students. Anyway. So, so my, my question really is what is your experience of LinkedIn groups, Ben? And do you, is, is anything that I'm saying resonating with you or, or, or not really? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, and I'll say you're bringing me back to LinkedIn groups more um, in the past month or so. Uh, I used to be pretty involved in several higher ed focused uh, uh, LinkedIn groups. Here's my I would my thought is we probably at least in this particular industry aren't as engaged in LinkedIn as we could be, and and I would agree that I would say even five years ago 
there were a handful of people that are the heaviest contributors. The problem I had with it was eight out of 10 of those very involved people were consultants like me trying to sell stuff or market stuff. Uh, and that's not the way, in my view at least, to effectively have a, a strong community, a strong group, because that's a LinkedIn group is a community, yeah. a, a subset users, this community of users around a specific topic and having these third party folks in there always pushing out promotional stuff what i would call junk yeah um deteriorates um folks interest level it's just like in you know 15 years ago maybe even maybe today um you sign up for these email you know from i don't know the gap or i don't know walmart pick whomever you sign up for the the email marketing list and you know, if you really love the company, you'll stay engaged for a long time. If you like the company, you'll stay engaged for a month or a few weeks. But after a while, if they keep emailing you and it's not relevant, it starts – well, in today's email world, those things just automatically get filtered out to a, a folder or a tab or somewhere that you rarely check um, because you just zone out of it. And I think that's kind of what happened with these groups. You've got these handful of people that are ruining it and it just dials everybody else. You can't – you know, find the good stuff for the junk. Um, and so I think, you know, if we take more responsibility and if I flip here and talk a little bit about LinkedIn groups as a recruitment tool, yeah, that's obviously not necessarily going to be inside of a LinkedIn, a higher ed focused LinkedIn group. It might be uh, in some business or accounting or whatever other program you're recruiting for. And that type of a group, you know, you have to find ways to engage that aren't saying, hey, come to our, our virtual open house. That's not it. It's yeah. not to say you can never do it, um, but I, I'm a big fan of uh, Gary Vaynerchuk. Uh, I think you know Gary, or yes, at least know Gary his work, v. right? I wish I knew Gary him. V. I know of him. <laughs> yes. So um, he, he's a guy who takes social marketing to a fanatical level, right? Uh, and he, and I would say, truth be told, somewhere deep, but as I was coming with the concept of fanatical recruitment, Gary V was somewhere inspiring me. Um, but it, it's an in-your-face look at it, and you know, he's got this uh, book. Um, what is it? Jab, jab, hook, or something like jab, 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 hook. And the concept is for every four posts that I put out, three of them need to be me providing value to you. One of them, you providing value to me. That one where you provide value to me is me asking for you to come to my virtual event. But the other three is true content that I'm not asking you for something for. I'm just giving you something of value to help you out in this particular area. So if I'm in a LinkedIn group about accounting, I might be um, putting out real information or news or things about how CPA laws are changing in a particular state or how the what what's the impact of a pandemic on uh, an, a financial audit. You know, what does that mean? Um, you know, that giving that information is going to attract people to read and then to see who they're reading from. And that builds your credibility so that when you then say, Hey, let's come to this virtual open house. Oh, I remember them. They're providing real value. I want to know more from these folks. They might be able to provide me the education I'm really looking for. That's, that's how those things work. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. And you know, uh, HubSpot talks a lot about this need to, add value before you extract value and you know many it's value uh, adding and value extracting is something that people in the marketing space have been talking about uh, 
for for a while now, but I feel like it's been a, a little bit louder in the past year or so. Um, and yeah, that's I love I love that. Did you say it's it's jab 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 hook? Is that what is that the name of yeah, Gary Vee's book? Like jab, okay. jab, maybe it's jab 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 lift hook or something like that. Yeah. No, but I think that it's that's actually a pretty large book when you think of the topic. Normally, I find books like this and they're you know small in size and 150 200 pages. This was a larger bulkier book. Um, really, and a very worthwhile read if you're into. Uh, social media marketing. That's um, jab, jab, that, jab, right hook. I just looked it up. That's yep, it. That's what it is. Yep. I'm a left. I'm left-handed, so <laughs> I would say jab, 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 left hook. Uh. No, but no, I, I. But I love, I love what you're talking about here, and I think that uh, one, you know, full disclosure, like an- anecdotally, what I do when I'm trying to get people to come on to our uh, the Enrollify podcast is. I will go, I will find something that they've read. I will send them an invite via LinkedIn, basically compl- and you know, I, I will actually read uh, whatever it is that they that I found um, out there on them and you know say, hey, so and so, hey, Mickey, found this article that you wrote on Inside Higher Ed, really liked your point about X, Y, and Z, would love to connect and talk about the possibility of having you on our show. And I kid you not that that tactic works incredibly well. And, you know, there's there's a little bit of flattery in there, I'm sure, which isn't, you know, the same as as um, adding value. But I do think that um, one of the things that that works really, really well is is engaging with people on a topic that they're interested on and sort of that that uh, that marriage between flattery, flattery and value, I think, can go a long way uh, before you ask anyone to commit some of their time or you ask anyone to sign up for for your webinar, et cetera. So. I think that there's we could we could talk all day about the need, especially in enrollment marketing, to think more critically about how you're adding value and not just extracting value from a from a prospective student. But I actually want to move on and and talk a little bit about um, uh, the speed to respond. So you talk about this this idea of um, uh, needing to obviously operate and, and move really, really quickly. This aligns very well with your idea of, of fanatical recruitment. Once somebody comes to the door, right, how do you quickly engage them, deliver value, you know, get, get them what they need as quickly as humanly possible. But can you talk a little bit about uh, what you mean by specifically by speed to respond and how this is even more important for enrollment marketers to, to be aware of in the area, in this, you know, COVID era that we're all living through? Sure, and and I will and I will preface it by saying when I when, especially when I'm thinking speed to respond, it's not always, but generally aligned more towards online programs, graduate programs, adult undergraduate programs, not necessarily your traditional programs. Um, it's not to say speed doesn't matter at all there, but uh, in terms of this speed to respond and knowing that when someone submits a form uh, to request more information, what is your response going to look like? How quickly can you respond? And I know, look, this scares folks. Yeah. Uh, it, like they don't want to be like the quote unquote for profit. Um, but if you do research in terms of how folks are just making their decisions on, on enrolling uh, and you look at, at at how other institutions are responding, you know, um, I don't know if folks out there know Carolyn Islanian, um, Islanian Marketing Group, now part of Education Dynamics for several years now. But, uh, you know, they do a lot. They partner with the Learning House and they do some research every year at how they do you know, major surveys of, of online students to see how they make their choice in enrolling. And, you know, and, um, and I, I don't remember the exact 
um, number. It was like 51 to 53 percent of students um, that responded to the survey. Um, and again, this is thousands of students here are saying they ended up choosing to enroll with the school that contacted them first. Wow. It wasn't necessarily their intent, right, that that's what they necessarily wanted if they in, uh, inquired with several schools. But that's the one that they ended up choosing. Now, think about that. That's incredible. I mean, right? Yeah. So, and, and, and I'm not saying you have to try to get a phone call out to somebody in a few in three minutes' time, right? A, it's not feasible for everybody. Second, it, it freaks some people out and you get nervous and scared about it. But if you think you're going to call somebody three days later or email them in a less assertive way, in a less engaging way than a phone call three days later, just know that anyone else they've already inquired with probably has already engaged them. And you've just lost, you know, a significant opportunity to potentially enroll that student. So your odds of enrolling that student may have gone from 80% or 60% and be down to 5 to 20%. Yeah. And if you think about how you're investing your time, your money, and resources, is that what you want to do? And when you look at the return you get on a, on a digital campaign, you know, on, on the conversion rate you have, you know, it's not like you have 5,000 people coming in the door and, and if you only enroll 20%, you know, that's not an issue for most smaller institutions at least, right? Um, you need, from an enrollment perspective, and especially in today's world, you need every student you can get. And you don't want to pressure someone into the wrong thing, but you want to provide them an opportunity. And I look at it, you know, this way, and this is from when I was working in higher ed, I had a very firm belief that the program my institution offered was going to provide the best or an equal to education is any of those competitors they can be looking at. And so if I didn't get back to that student, they could be making a wrong decision just because they didn't get a chance to understand how our program functioned. Yeah. Yeah. No, right. it, that, uh, as, go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, it's not about pressuring them to enroll with you. It's about giving them information so they can make an informed decision. And if you're not engaging with them and sending a automated email uh, and sending a, a, you know, a long 400 word email to say, Hey, an automated one, mind you, this is, I'm Mickey. I'm your enrollment person. Here's the 17 things you need to do to enroll with us. Thinking that that's going to engage them is a mistake. It's wrong. That doesn't engage them. That's a delete email. <laughs> that's a delete email. I love, I love that. No. And I mean, you know, and Hey, here's some, here's some just interesting, you know, uh, quick data points from the secret shopper experiment that we're doing. Uh, right now, again, this is specifically at the graduate level, and we're doing this with uh, with just business programs at at the moment here. But uh, of the so a little bit of context, we went and uh, inquired at eighty different business schools to basically figure out how are folks responding um, from a communication standpoint with with respect to everything happening with COVID nineteen. How many people have changed communications? What are their, you know, what's the tone of these communications, et cetera. And just, you know, what is the overall sort of experience for the, the, the post-inquiry experience um, for, for prospective students at these institutions. And we figured that the top 20 uh, MBA programs could probably survive on brand alone. So we excluded them from this experiment. But what's crazy is of the 80 that we, that we inquired at, 40 required phone number as as a field um, when you go in and and, and uh, submit the RFI, um, and so so you know 50% half of those schools required a phone number, and of those schools, only one of them 
literally one of those schools has called me since I uh, first inquired. And again, I inquired all on the same day. It's been about five weeks uh, since uh, the start of this experiment. But since in, in that five-week period of time, only one of the schools that I gave my personal cell phone number to has actually called me. So, you know, there are lots of questions there, right? Like, okay, maybe they're trying to respect my privacy. Maybe if they're really smart, they're tracking how engaged I am or am not with their email communications, right? And they're using that to discern if they should if they should give me a phone call or not. Uh, I, I highly doubt that. I think, you know, the reality of the situation is that most of them are capturing this data because they need it technically for their CRM, but they don't uh, you know, maybe they're using Slate and it's a, it's a required field in order, you know, in Slate or, or whatever it might be. Um, but the reality of the situation is that they should not be asking me for this information or at the very least not be requiring me to submit this information if they're not going to do anything with it, right? Five weeks without a phone call after giving you my number, that's that's unacceptable, right? Why, why ask for my phone number then? That's an excellent point. Uh, and when... If we want to get to the weeds and you start looking at data in terms of how many fields should be on a form to optimize the number of submissions you have, you know, that's a few number of fields. I'm not talking three, but I I haven't looked to be clear. I've not looked at the data in a couple of years, but it used to be like eight to 10 fields on a form was an optimal number to um, get the most number of responses, right? And if you're asking information that you need for a student to enroll, but this is at the inquiry stage and you've got another opportunity to collect information. So my, the example I typically use is the address. If you don't physically mail anything, you don't really have to have the address at least until they apply. Sure. Right? Sure. Uh, now you may want it earlier. Um, if you're a public institution and care about residency, for example, well, maybe you could get a zip code and that tells you a little bit, right? But not the address. And so I don't have to worry about address one, address two, city, state, all of that, country. All of that you don't necessarily have to have at that inquiry stage. So if I pull those off the form, A, I'm shortening my form. I can think about more relevant questions that will help my staff engage a person. And if you're going to ask me for a phone number and not use it, A, you need to understand the importance of of how many people you're losing just by simply asking for that number. Sure. Right, because that's the one of the, if not the, is one of the top two or three fields that people are most reluctant to want to give, and so if you're going to ask for it and make it mandatory or required, and then not use it, you could be losing, you could you could potentially increase your number of submissions by what ten to twenty percent. Yeah, yeah, no, I and mean, so oh. it's it's a crime, Zach. That's a crime to ask and require for a phone number and not use it. Well, and and to get back and to get back what you were to to what you were saying earlier, just about like, right, uh, the this whole idea of speed to respond, right? So funny, the one school that did call me, right, was William and Mary's Mason School of Business, and they gave me a call probably I want to say within the hour of me submitting that that form, um, and I picked up the phone and. Uh, the the person on the other line, the the program coordinator, was w- basically said, "Hey Zach, you know I'm just calling to let you know uh, we received your information. Thank you so much. Here to answer any questions. I just wanted to make sure that you were aware that uh, this is a an in person uh, on campus uh, MBA program that that you've inquired about. And I noticed that you are calling from a 703 number, which is a Northern Virginia number. Just wanted to you know clarify and, and make sure that uh, you inquired about the right program that you're that you would actually be able to to attend this this program uh, fully on campus." Um, and whatnot. It was it was an 
talk, you know, and it was just, it was a really, really casual, like organic conversation that did not seem salesy. It actually seemed like, whoa, here was somebody trying to help me make sure or that I didn't make a mistake. Right. And it was, it was a smart tactic on their end. Right. Like, um, they got a phone call conversation with me. Um, but it was, it was, I, I left that phone call and, uh, feeling like somebody had my, had my back and actually my, my, uh, brand perception of the program went up and then just somewhat tangentially so far, I don't know what, who they're working with, if they're doing this in-house or if they, if they're contracting with a vendor here, but whoever their digital ad partner is, or whoever's doing their digital advertising in-house is doing a, fantastic job. They are, they have monopolized my LinkedIn feed. Like I only see ads from, uh, William and Mary's Mason school of business and the ads change. They're different. The copy's different, but like they have, they have found a way to solely target my LinkedIn feed. And literally there's like a, you know, a couple other institutions that I'll see here, here, you know, now and then, but, uh, I, I see William and Mary ads literally every single day. Um, so whoever's doing that is, is doing a, a, a fantastic job, but anyways, I'm going all, all on, all, uh, you know, on all sorts of, uh, tangents here. But the point being that I, I do think like maybe, maybe it's worth thinking, especially in the era of COVID-19, whether or not we're being too slow to respond. Right. I, I do think there's this, as people become more aware and more cognizant of protecting, user data, user information, not wanting to be salesy, not wanting to be too for profity. Maybe we've actually gone too far to, you know, the other end of the spectrum. So much to correct so, it. To yeah. correct it. Yeah. So much so that we're we're losing uh real opportunities to engage with prospects and to engage them in meaningful, creative ways um, that actually might help accelerate their journey to enrollment. Um, and I think William and Mary, you know, is just such a great example based off of that one experience um, of, of a school that's that's doing that. Um, and, I, you know, I, I have yet to feel annoyed. They, they, they called me once. They haven't called me again. I told them that I prefer to communicate via email. Um, I haven't let them know yet that this is all part of just an, uh, just an experiment. Maybe somebody from, uh, William and Mary's Mason school of business is listening to this. Um, but you know, th the point being that I do think that in this particular moment, schools are going to have to over communicate. They, they're just going to have to, right. And like, as you were saying, Mickey, we're fighting for every button seat that we can get this fall, let alone for fall 2021. Um, so love this idea. Think that people need to to evaluate their communications plan and and maybe think critically about being a little quicker to respond. Absolutely. All right, Mickey. I have a couple final questions for you. You ready? Fire away. Okay. So we could talk all day, but let's get a little tactical here. Um, what are one to two things that listeners can do over the next, let's just say the next week or two to move the needle as they prep for this next uh, recruitment cycle? Just one or two things that if you were leading an admissions team, an enrollment management team right now, what would you be having your team focus on over the next two weeks? So well, let me clarify. Are we talking about the next recruitment cycle being maybe spring 2021 or fall 2021 or are we talking about transitioning from summer 2020 to fall 2020 let's think about fall 2021 but but so like how would okay. you like let's assume right that 
the institute, you know, Monday is June one. Let's assume that that's the date for uh, the admissions deadline for this in your particular context. And so now while, you know, you need to be worried about Mel, you need to be worried about lots of things. Let's just say that you've decided that your team is going to focus on strategies for recruitment for fall of 2021. How would you spend time over the next couple of weeks guiding your team to, to focus their attention? I would start creating a couple of plans. One, um, the first one being what happens if we have no on-site recruitment fall travel? That's where you get a lot of leads. That's where you engage a lot of people. How do we make up for that? And, and that's part a part a of this plan is how do we make up for that? And B of this plan is how do we engage? What's the right way to coach the team to engage the folks in a different way? Um, and you, you've got to be ready for that. And then the second plan is going to be, okay, what happens if there's some hybrid version of that? And how do we respond part A and part B in the same way? So what does that mean for us? Are, are the number of leads we generate from our staff being on the road is going to be decreased dramatically? And how do we compensate for that? Because we know we still need to get the leads either way. And then how do we engage? And, and so if I've got a, some hybrid mix where I might be in person, some certain things and virtual and others, I want to be sure that I know when a prospect's in my um, database for my team to recruit if they were virtual or if they were in person because it's going to be different on how I want to respond to it. So how do I create that path for a virtual versus an in-person? And how do we change our communications? We talked a little already earlier today about the amount of work and the need to change communications. Don't let another cycle go by without reviewing and modifying those communications so that you're really engaging folks and having a plan in place in case something does happen and this um, virus comes back hard in the fall and in the winter, we have to really pivot. How do we then flip a switch rather than have to go back into planning mode? We don't want to have to take another three or four weeks to go back into planning. We need to be able to flip some switches. Fantastic. To bias, yep. Let it you flip the switches. Buy some time while we finish the rest of the plan. But let's get those plans started, and that's what I want to focus on the next two weeks. Love it, love it, great. And final, final question for you uh, to conclude our first episode of Fanatical Fridays. And that question is uh, obviously June thirty is right around the corner here. Folks are winding down their fiscal year. Many people have budgets that are completely frozen, if and and you know, uh, in lar- if not frozen, in large part already allocated. But for folks that might have a few extra dollars to to spare before June thirty, and they're worried about losing their budget come July one, how would you spend any remaining dollars that do exist before the thirtieth? Um. So you've asked me this question before, but I have. You could you could ask me this question a week ago, and it's still going to probably be different this week because so much changes on a week to week basis, uh, and we, you see how schools are pivoting. So uh, probably, uh, uh, so it's going to depend on several things. Um, some of it is going to depend on what population I'm targeting. Some of it's going to depend on actually how much money it really is that I have left over. But I need to understand what uh, if I'm going to use this money to impact fall 2020. What segment uh, of my audience can I best use the dollars to engage in really fine-tuning how I target? If it's geo-based, if it is population type, meaning honor students, and I can use this for improving my financial aid or, or, or scholarship offers, you know, what, what population? Finding that out 
um, immediately if you don't know that so that then you can say, okay, if it is geo, if it's folks um, reengaging folks that are close to home because we think they're going to be um, rethinking their plans and staying closer to home, okay, then let's go back to our prospect pool and look at people that have inquired and or applied, um, maybe start an application and not finished it. Because the deeper they get into your funnel, the more engaged or interested they initially were you uh, in your program. So how can we re-engage that population type? And, and that's where I would really start to focus my money, uh, right there, so that I can get the best bang for my dollars at that point. What do you think about transfers? Would you spend any money on like a, a transfer campaign, just targeting students who are home, uh, who obviously, who, you know, who might have, be enrolled at other institutions, but mom and dad are saying, hey, you know, hey, Joe, you're going to have to stay home. We don't know what's going to happen in the fall. We're really nervous. We're not sending you back to school. Would you spend any money on like a geospecific uh, campaign focused on, on, on transfers? Oh, yes. I mean, and so I think it depends upon, um, a, a few things here are transfers. If you are a transfer-friendly institution, it's going to be easier for you to do that than if you aren't. Sure. And when I say transfer-friendly, I mean if I'm looking to transfer your institution and I get a transcript and send it to you um, and it, you can get it turned around in a couple of days, great. If it's going to take you a couple of weeks to get that turned around, you're not really that transfer-friendly. Hmm. All right? And so – I want and so if you and that's not the only indicator by the way. I'm just using that as an example because transfer students going to want answers quickly. And if you's going to take two weeks just to tell them what will transfer and what won't, that's not really quickly in their mind. Regardless of what you say on your internally on your speed, their prospective student, that's not going to be timely for them. So um, if you think you can make an impact there and you're set up to handle that then yes, I would focus on it. If you don't think you can get that turnaround quickly and meet their needs, especially if you increase that number of people sending you transcripts by 10, 20%, and that's going to overwhelm your team, be, be ready to support that. Uh, and if you, if that's the population, yes, I might hit that up. Uh, and at this point, I know folks are trying to reach and find any opportunity they can. Um, and transfer students is definitely going to be one of those populations um, that there are going to be opportunities for. They're going to be more transfers, quote unquote, on the market than there typically are at this point in time. So, uh, um, so that, that definitely is an audience. Um, just think through how you want to engage them, uh, what the right message needs to be for someone who's rethinking that, having care and consideration in that content. Don't be too passive, though. Um, and then uh, understanding what does that mean operationally for your team so that you can be ready to take those leads in, talk to them, give them the answers that they're going to need quickly so they can make an informed decision. Love it. Lots and lots and lots of gold as as per usual with you, Mickey. Um, thanks everyone for for tuning in to our very first Fanatical Fridays. Um, we look forward to hearing your feedback on the show. We are, as you can tell, it's a very organic show. We're still figuring out how to best deliver value to to you, our listeners. So any feedback that you might have is is more than welcomed. But we're really excited to to bring you this new segment and to continue these uh, hopefully fun. They're at least fun for us. Or at least fun for me. I, I hope they're fun for you, Mickey. Uh, oh, oh, definitely uh, fun. Dialogues on on the future of enrollment marketing. So, uh, so thanks everyone for your time. Thanks for having me too, Zach. I appreciate it.